Everybody ready? You good? Mm-hmm. Okay. Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast. I'm Tori Wells, and in this episode, we are focusing on health and how it can be improved with data. I'm joined by Professor Kristen Bennett, Associate Director of the Institute for Data Exploration and Application at Rensselaer. Hello. And Professor Jurgen Hahn, Head of the Department of Biomedical Engineering at Rensselaer. Hello. Now, you both use data to tackle some of today's biggest health challenges. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been working on? Kristen, let's start with you. Well, we have been working on all sorts of applications of data in health. And our focus has been on looking at both at how you can use health to improve the overall population's health and also looking at outcomes for individuals. How can you support uh, better choices for individual health? Okay. We're mainly looking at uh, really two aspects, and they're related to uh, autism spectrum disorder. I mean, one is that we're trying to use data in order to come up with uh, a test that allows you to determine if somebody has autism or not. The second aspect is where we're looking at the population aspects uh, of autism, given that it develops over many years and it's a very heterogeneous population. It's hard to study, and so data is crucial in that uh, context. I think initially when people are talking about health, they're thinking about things like medicine, a clinical setting. They're not necessarily thinking of data. What does it allow you to see? What the data allows us to do is to study things that we might not be able to study formally. So the gold standard for health information is a randomized clinical trial. But you can't do a randomized clinical trial about everything. It's too expensive, too time-consuming. So with data, we can do observational studies on past data from the millions and millions of patients that have data collected. And we can use this to help us derive outcomes and interventions and and understand past things that allow us to uh, make better decisions in the future for patients. Yeah, let me add to that. Uh, I mean, basically, if you go back a few decades. A lot of the medical conditions we looked at are, I would say, somewhat simple, in the sense that if you have a bacterial infection, I know I I have this infection, I can give you antibiotics, this should help clear up the infection, hopefully you feel better. But when you come to very, very complex uh, conditions like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, autism, and the list goes on and on, then you find that these are really... um, you're going to have to look at years and years of, uh, yeah, of really of data in order to determine what's going on here. And this is what makes it very challenging. And so the, the, the standard clinical trials where we try to keep everything the same and just vary one factor at a time, they don't work well if I need to look at year, or the behavior of somebody over several years. Like, for example, your diet's going to change from one day to the next. You're not eating the same thing every day of the year for multiple years in a row. Uh, so the only way to deal with that is really if you look at a lot of data and figure out how to handle that. And so this is, it's basically, it's a different approach, but it allows us to look at questions that we really couldn't answer otherwise. So let's play off of that. What are some questions that you've been able to answer in your own research because of the data? So um, some examples of questions that we've been looking at are um, questions from population health. 
So uh, an application we've been working on right now is called Mortality Minder. And the idea here is that um, in the United States, mortality rates are actually rising. So we want to understand what are the social determinants of mortality rates? What are things like poverty, um, access to health care, commuting, health practices, socioeconomic statuses, and we want to look at the relationship of those and mortalities, and then we can design better policies and procedures to help improve people's lives and have them live longer, healthier lives. Cool. So let me give uh, two examples. I mean, one coming back to uh, basically the autism diagnosis. Like traditionally, you look at components in the blood uh, or certain genetic information, and people are always hope maybe there's this one gene or maybe there's this one component that you're measuring that tells you something. And the reality is it's not. It really has to be a combination of things. But by looking at the data, we find out that certain concentrations are a little higher in people with autism, others are a little lower, a third one is a little higher again, and together they form a very nice pattern that you will not find if you just look at them one by one. And so it's a data approach for that. Um, when we look at our population studies, like we have, uh, we have studied how co-occurring conditions and, um, go along with autism. Again, you're going to have to look at this both over extended periods of time as well as looking at multiple co-occurring conditions at once because it's usually um, children who have a, an autism diagnosis. They have many other things going on. You, you're usually not going to find somebody who has autism and epilepsy, but nothing else. Okay. Most likely they have some other conditions and really these um, data approaches where we look at all the conditions at once and use as much of the data as possible. They help us find uh, out what's going on here. I think some of the people listening may be wondering where to get the data from. So that, that's a really interesting question. So data is collected all over the place, um, but data that is shared isn't that common. So at the population level, there's a lot of data sets available. So that's one reason why we work in population health. And at the individual level, then you have um, healthcare records that are uh, sensitive and protective. And we, the way we access those is we partner with um, medical institutions or insurance companies or whatever. So, uh, for example, we work with the United Health Foundation and with Optum Labs and um, United Health insures uh, and works with a large segment of the population in the United States. So there's actually, you know, 500 million people mm. in that data set. So we have the opportunity through our partners to work with them. And, and another example of that is we work with CDPHP, which is the Capital Dis District Physician Health Plan, and it's an HMO. And um, so we're helping them design policy. So we work with them, and we actually work in their sandboxes, in their environment where the data is protected. It's not so much different from what we do. I mean, for our population studies, uh, we mainly use data from uh, Optum Labs, uh, which has already been mentioned. We do work on some studies uh, for where we have clinical trial data. There, of course, we don't have as large populations, but we have a lot of measurements per patient, and that's why data is still a very important data, but it's a different type of data problem. People are always concerned about their own privacy, and that's a huge consideration in your work. How do you go about that with your partners, or how does that play into that consideration of privacy play into your work? So in my work, I have two approaches. I guess I really have three approaches. First, we partner with these um, health 
companies and we abide by all their standards and actually operate in their environments and they the data is very protected and and we're not ever allowed to bring it to RPI or anything like that and then we also use public data sets that are released and we get very creative about pulling data from different sources and then a third thing we do is we actually make synthetic data so um, we want to establish health education uh, programs here at RPI. So um, in order to do that, students need to work with real health data, but it's private and they can't go and work in these sandbox environments. So actually with support of United Health Foundation, we are actually developing methods to synthesize data that looks and feels like real data, but actually has no real patients in it. And, um, and the purpose of this is for education and research, because um, there's kind of a a chilling effect on research that you don't have access to the data. So lots of people who could be contributing to research on health problems, like say in machine learning or statistics or whatever, they can't because they don't have access to the data. And also you can't reproduce results um, that other people done because you don't have access to that data. So we're actually developing models using deep learning or neural nets that enable us to create um, models that will generate data that has the same statistical properties and hopefully maintains the same relationships. And then you can develop your methods and your analysis on that and, and, um, and have students learn and let people do research. And many people participate on this data with no exposure of patients at all. And then if you really want to know if the result's completely true, you would actually take the methods and the codes you've developed you would import it into that secure sandbox that is maintained by people like Optum Labs and, um, and then verify that the results really hold. But you have minimal patient exposure because you never, most of the work is done completely external on these synthetic data. Mm. And it's really a, a new application of big data. For us, all of our data is de-identified. So basically the minute it reaches us, it's not, there, there's no information about who the person is, where they live. Uh, well, fine, we, we know by state, but not uh, any closer than that. And so um, there's no way we could identify who is who, and therefore the privacy concerns then actually go away. Some of this is we also deal with uh, sandboxes of providers, but even there, what we are seeing is is de-identified data. So it's, it's that's actually not an issue for my type of work. So you mentioned machines. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So what I'd like to add to that is de-identification is an excellent idea and it does perfect privacy, but it has a cost. So for people to de-identify, it takes time and effort. And, um, and then it also restricts the data and it obscures information. So the synthetic process allows you to not do that, right? And so you get the feel of the real data. Um, so it is kind of an alternative approach. Mm -hmm. Both of you are working with machine learning approaches in your research. So talk to us about that. What does that look like? What does that mean when you're trying to answer questions? So really, uh, my specialization is designing custom machine learning models for problems and statistical methods and also visualizations for particular problems. And um, so typically, we look at a problem and we try to think about, well, what do I need to know to solve this problem? What is the information? And we work with the people in the field to try to dig out how, what are the important questions? How do you translate this data set into an answer to a problem? And um, through that process, we develop customized mathematical models. And I've been doing this since my very first paper in 1988 was on cancer. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the goal of machine learning is that we take the data and we want to find certain trends. Yeah, that could be either that how uh, the data changes because of changes in some input variable, or it could be that I have different populations and I want to see separate, the, the differences between the two. What my work really focuses on is that we want to make sure that uh, we're not overfitting the data. That's always a concern. Like it's nice that you have huge amounts of data and I can f find some algorithm that basically finds trends in there, but these algorithms, you have to tailor them so that A, they reflect the data as best as possible and find what you're interested in, but B, that they're not picking up random fluctuations in there because there is always a danger of that. And so how do we basically best deal with this so that um, you get as much information of the data while not basically interpreting things in there that are artifacts? Um, I'm curious about your different backgrounds and how your work is similar or might be slightly different. You're coming at this from, from two different angles, but it's also in some ways very similar. So talk to us about your, your background, computer science, engineering. How do they all work together? How are they a little bit different? So um, I have a PhD in computer science, but I do very mathematical computer science, so I actually ended up working in a, in a math department. And uh, the fun part about doing mathematical models for data is you can do anything. So I've worked with Jurgen's data. I've worked with data in, uh, uh, in diabetes, in, in uh, mortality rates, on semiconductor manufacturing, on designing drugs. So you can work on any topic. So you can have this mathematical foundation and learn about data and learn about computer science, and then you can take it any direction. I mean, there's obviously lots of similarities, uh, but I think the, one of the differences that comes in is often a bit the, the angle that you take, the types of problems that you want to solve. Like, let, let me give you one example. Yeah? So the work we did for autism diagnosis, other people had been looking at if I have a population that has autism and one that doesn't, um, but basically, can I find a difference there? But we decided that, well, as an engineer, I would like to have a test. Yeah, what does it take to make a test out of these results? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the test looks similar, but there are other considerations that come into play. Yeah, and so our motivation is a little different there. I give you a simple example. Even if we get 98% of all people identified correctly, the question comes in, who are you actually trying to identify? Are you don't you want to test everybody in the population? That could be a problem because if you have a condition that only affects, let's say, 2% of the population, then getting 98% right is not as great because clearly uh, you're only the vast majority of people you have will never have this condition. Yeah, and uh, so there's uh, different questions that come into play. Or are we focusing on uh, only people who are at very high risk? Then the, the ratios change. And those, those, so the motivation is different. The actual work that we do, there's quite a bit of similarities in there as well. Um, let me give a, bring one other example, and this, this ties a little bit into the application and the context, and that's what's really important to me. So if you, for example, look at... Um, Diabetes, yeah, you have a, I mean, obviously you have a connection there between um, if you eat a meal, your blood sugar is going to go up afterwards because of what you eat in the meal. And then if you're a diabetic and uh, you're type 1, you inject insulin before you eat the meal with the goal of you want to keep essentially your blood glucose below a certain threshold even after you've eaten the meal. If I just look at the data and take this out of context, my algorithm is going to identify there's a correlation between you taking insulin and your blood glucose going up. 
Yeah. Now, the blood glucose is not going up because of the insulin. It's going up because of the meal, and you anticipate that. And uh, so these types of context interpretation, they're really, really important to what I'm doing. I'm not saying other people aren't doing that. Of course they are. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's a bit more where does, uh, how this plays into your motivation. So you touched on how you got into data and health, or at least when you did. But talk to us, both of you, just about how you got into using data with health and, and what you see for the future of your research. So I've been doing it since it, before it was hip, because <laughs> I did it machine learning for cancer in my thesis. And I've been doing it ever since in health and um, drug discovery and also in many non-health applications. And um, it's really ballooned in the field. Uh, the, the field of data science has exploded. Um, so the, the big differences now is that there's just such massive data available in all different aspects of our life. I mean, we have uh, healthcare records, and we have also maybe your activity tracker, and you can have these wearable devices. You might have your Twitter feeds. We have all kinds of data about what's going around the world, in, around the world about us. Um, you know, policies, procedures, measurements, all kinds of things. So we have a huge opportunity to uh, take these together and make. The world better and have better health outcomes for people but it's also a huge challenge because it's kind of overwhelming I mean like you have so much data on so many things but it's maybe not exactly the data you want and so what can we do with that so um, the big challenge is trying to develop this into things that can um, benefit people and do that efficiently with all this data that no human's ever going to have time to look at yeah, I mean, basically, traditionally, my training has been computational systems biology. And so the goal for systems biology is rather than uh, changing like one variable at a time and seeing how a biological system uh, evolves, what happens if I look at the system as a whole? Because you're going to find there's comp there mechanism for compensation in there, and you're not going to see that until you really basically to take a more holistic view. Yeah. And um, this goes all the way from starting with individual cells to organs to uh, entire human beings. Yeah. And that's how I kind of the angle how I got into this. What do you see for the future for your students? And feel, to, feel free to jump in and ping pong off each other. But you talk about the challenges and, and also the opportunities uh, when it comes to data. I know it's something that both of you were focused on, data and teaching your students how to use data effectively. So um, the big potential is that you potentially could do precision health or precision medicine. You could potentially make individual decisions that are best for people based on their genome or their activity. You could basically do almost like a specialized observational clinical trial for every person. But in order to do that, you have to make sure you're doing it right and you um, do it efficiently, effectively, and correctly. Because otherwise, as Dr. Han was saying, as Jurgen was saying, you know, you can get the wrong conclusions. So a big challenge in precision health is um, understanding the right way to do things and uh, understanding how to make valid uh, conclusions and teaching students how to address these problems and design them. And then the other big challenge is that, well, 
there's really not enough data scientists in the world to do this, so we really have to make artificially intelligent systems that are capable of solving these problems automatically. So, you know, you could say, you know, hey, computer, um, I want to understand the impact of this drug on this person, and it would actually, the artificially intelligent system would go back and do a study uh, observational study to determine that effect. And it has to be done properly, and it has to automatically weed through all this complex data and format it and design the models and evaluate it. And maybe it has to also talk to you about the results and how it would speak to a doctor about a result and a patient might be very different, right? Because they have different levels of knowledge. So, um, so I think we're going to see a combination of both these analytical and machine learning, but also more general AI intelligent systems that will help facilitate doctors and people doing treatments and policymakers and even individual patients to make better decisions based on past data, right? And that's like one of the focuses of the um, Rensselaer Health Empowerment by Analytics and Learning and Semantics Center we have. It's called HEALS with IBM. It's a joint project. And we're really trying to make those customized things for doctors and for patients so that if I'm a pre-diabetic or something, I can make better choices so I have better outcome and really leverage all this information we have and this data available. Yeah, I think this the, this point of precision medicine is, is absolutely key. Yeah? And the one thing I want to add to that is that, I mean, this is not just something where you say, well, maybe things will work a little better because of this. It's, it's, in many cases, this can be absolutely crucial between if some intervention will work or not. I mean, you have certain types of cancers that work where certain interventions work and others will not. Yeah, And some conditions, you may even find that almost everybody has a unique angle in it and almost everybody would need a somewhat unique way of dealing with this, yeah? And so this is where the work comes in to determine what are these subgroups that we're dealing with, what kind of treatments work for what subgroups. And if I'm, to pick the example, like a pre-diabetic, what can I do in order to prevent uh, that this progresses further to a stage, yeah? Um, everybody may be di a bit different there. I think one of the challenges, one of the things that's going to be really big a big challenge for us for moving forward is that we are looking at essentially um, data that reflects lifestyle changes or lifestyle. Yeah? And that goes from how much do you exercise to what you eat and do this over extended periods of time and try to uh, connect this with, um, with essentially your health and how your health progresses. And that's, that's a problem that's going to keep us busy for a long, long time. Any final thoughts? Anything I didn't ask you that you think it's interesting on this topic right now? I guess I would add, um, I talked a little bit about precision medicine, how we make individual decisions for you that are best for you, that for your health outcomes. But in order for us to really turn around medicine, we have to do it at a population level. So this kind of um, understanding at a population level, how can I support lifestyle changes? How, what kind of policies and procedures should we have in place? Um, there's a, that's another huge opportunity for data because we spend, I mean, just the Medicaid spending in New York alone in, in one year is almost $70 billion, right? So if we can use data to make small improvements and figure out better ways to do this, there's a huge potential savings in cost as well as improvements in people's lives. And, and that's, it's a big potential to address it at a population level as well. 
So let me add actually one point. I think what's what's going to be really important is also to basically get buy-in from uh, doctors and policymakers. I'm not saying there's some level of buy-in, but uh, but at the same time, these are fields that have developed somewhat separately. Yeah? I mean, the, the many of the healthcare professionals they. Uh, they look at this a certain way, and the, the the very quick development in the data realm, they have they're kind of disconnected from that. And we're going to have to basically rope people in and saying like, look, um, we have to form teams where everybody's trying to solve the same type of problem, but um, but we have to really play upon the strength and the most recent developments, and that includes building trust that this is this is a, this is the way to go at least for certain types of problems. Well, it's an exciting topic with a lot of opportunities, and we really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and and speak with us about that today. The Why Not Change the World podcast is recorded in the Solois Suite at MPAC, the Curtis R. Prem Experimental Media and Performing Arts Center at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Thank you to the MPAC staff for their assistance, and thank you for listening.